Welcome to Down to Zero, a series where we talk to game-changing climate entrepreneurs, innovators and investors about their journey into climate and where the sector is headed. We're your hosts, Shanice Mohinani and Florian Dahlhausen. And today, we're speaking about investing in nature-based solutions that protect natural ecosystems and help us mitigate the climate crisis with Gen Zero, one of the most prominent decarbonization-focused investors. While we love all our guests who come on the show, this one is special because we get to welcome my former colleague and fellow Singapore Management University alum, Ling Min, who is an investment director at Gen Zero. From reforestation to regenerative agriculture, we're going to be covering it all in today's episode. Lingman, we're so excited to have you here. Likewise, Fishnitz. And it's a down-to-zero tradition by now that we kick off with a quick round of rapid-fire questions at the beginning. And we'll start with the first one, which is, what is your favorite place in nature? Right, Florian. Um, my favorite place in nature is actually Iguazu Falls. Uh, it spans the borders of Brazil and Argentina. Uh, for those of you who haven't been there, spectacular, majestic, dash of waterfalls. Uh, but what was also interesting to me was that I saw a lot of brown water when I was there visiting. And it was only after the event when I did a little bit of Googling that I found out that part of the reason could be attributed to deforestation for the upstream, which then caused soil erosion that gets washed out into the river, especially during heavy rainfalls. Very cool. So now that I have that on my travel bucket list, I also know much more about the place and how climate is affecting it. Let's move to the second question. What's your favorite climate book? Ah, uh, there's been, well, there's abundance of uh, climate documentaries and publications to date. I think one of the earlier books that I've, I've actually identified with was An Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore, um, largely because it's one of the earliest advocates in terms of taking climate action. And I quote him, we can't afford inaction any longer, and frankly, there's just no excuse for it. But I must say that it's not quite my favorite book as yet, because I really think that my favorite story is still being written as we speak, and the chapters are really still unfolding by the day, and I think the authors of these books is going to be you and I, Florian, uh, and Chinese. Well, the actions that all of us are collectively undertaking by the day, it will essentially be shaping the narrative of our climate journey, I'm very much but look forward to seeing how that pans out. That's wonderful. And a nice transition to the last, next question and the last one of our rapid fire, which is who do you think is your personally most inspiring climate warrior who might be helping to write that chapter that you just mentioned? Huh. I think it's not just one warrior. I actually have a duo in mind. It's a father and son duo. And incidentally, I happened to meet with the son Barney Swan earlier this year. So um, his father, Robert Swan, was an explorer and was the first person to walk to both the North and South Poles in the late 1980s. And he and his son, Barney, then set off on the South Pole Energy Challenge in 2017. Uh, unfortunately, halfway through the journey, Robert had to turn back due to an injury, so that leaves Barney and his son to complete the challenge alone. And he was the first person in history to actually walk to South Pole powered solely by renewable energy. And the renewable gear that he carried actually added 20 kilograms. Um, but Swan really wanted to incorporate that to prove that if technologies can be used under such harsh conditions, um, they can be easily incorporated into our daily lives. So I found that actually really inspiring. What a wonderful, inspiring person in the climate space. And with that, I'll hand it over to Shanice to really kick us off with the podcast. Awesome. 
So Lingman, you've built a prolific career in investing and you've done this across so many different sectors like transportation, logistics, industrial. Now you're leading the charge for investments in nature-based solutions and carbon ecosystem enablers at Gen Zero. So tell us a bit more through your eyes about your journey and how you found yourself drawn to climate and sustainability. Yeah, no, that needs the question. It's actually quite a fortuitous journey for, for myself. Uh, as you mentioned, I have an investments background. I've traditionally been investing in some of the more established and mature industry sectors, things like transportation, logistics, real estate. They really form kind of the backbone of the economy, but at the same time also responsible for some of the emissions that's taking place in the world today. So one thing led to another. I was always interested in seeing how innovative business models could be applied to transform and disrupt industries. So um, during one of the uh, one of the opportunities that I had was to actually join a supply chain technology venture capital fund. And um, through that experience, I was actually looking at some of the solutions that we can implement within supply chains to make them more environmentally sustainable. And, and I also came to debunk the, you know, kind of the assumption that sustainable solutions need to necessarily come at a premium or may not be as financially or commercially viable because in certain instances, we do see solutions such as route optimization. We can actually reduce emissions and if we, if we implement improved management or reverse logistics, they can actually reduce wastage. So all of these are good examples of how actually um, solutions that help to improve sustainability can also be viable. And so it was kind of fortuitous when in, in kind of Late early 2021, Gen Zero was uh, in its early formation years uh, when it was still incubated within the Thematic Sustainability Group or what we affectionately call as the Carbon Solutions Platform with the true dedicated focus on investing into decarbonization and, and with it so really guided by a double bottom line around both financial returns as well as generating direct climate impact. So from that perspective, I, I thought this was a great avenue for me to really dive deep into climate investing. And the three pillars that, that we undertake within Gen Zero um, are actually extremely critical to, to moving some of the, the climate initiatives in the world today from technology-based solutions that will fundamentally decarbonize difficult to abate sectors, things like using advanced biofuels, so nature-based solutions, which uh, purportedly are sort of the low-hanging fruits in terms of protecting and restoring our natural ecosystems, but yet we see quite poor enforcement that still leads to large-scale deforestation and degradation today. And finally, as I mentioned, Shanish, uh, carbon ecosystem enablers, which will then allow us to invest into services and technologies that can accelerate and catalyze alternative. So I'll say all in all, the, the one thing led to another, and I, I'm glad the journey has brought me here to kind of really contribute to the climate space. Um, and maybe I've just earlier skills in terms of investing in the more heavy emitting sectors. Wonderful. And we're very excited to speak to you today. Um, I think the, the world of nature-based solutions is a really interesting one and extremely exciting. But in many cases, it's misunderstood or pretty mysterious to people. So before we dive into how Gen Zero sees the world, can you give us a quick lesson on what types of nature-based solutions, or as they're sometimes called NBS, investments exist, and who typically invests in such projects? Sure, Florent. I think nature-based solutions, or NBS as the name suggests, in the simplest form is really the protection and restoration of natural ecosystems. 
uh, as simple as it may sound, the natural landscapes are highly complex and a composition of many different elements of the environment. So the, the, the different project types that really could span across forestry, agriculture, as well as blue carbon, things around uh, carbon sinks in, in the coastal regions, as well as mangroves. Uh, I will talk about each of them, just give you a flavor of the types of underlying activities that you can undertake. So with that forestry, for instance, um, one of the lower hanging fruits will actually be to conserve or protect standing forests. Um, on, on the other hand, you also have the ability to uh, reforest or do afforestation on, on um, degraded lands as well. Um, but I think what was also interesting beyond pure conservation and restoration activities, another type of NBS activity that also takes place is actually a combination of commercial forestry and conservation and restoration activities, which also gives uh, another underlying economic returns in the form of sustainable timber harvesting. And why this is quite important in certain instances is that the commercial forestry activities actually allows for the catalyzation on a cat catalysis of the underlying conservation and restoration activities, which otherwise may not have the economic returns to make it viable. So that's kind of an asset category within uh, forestry that we look at as well. Within agriculture, uh, we're actually looking at essentially practices that can regenerate uh, agriculture or what we call regenerated agriculture. The years of continued farming usually leads to the uh, uh, degradation in soil quality. That's why it's actually important to implement regenerated agricultural practices. And this will vastly, you know, differ depending on the crop types that you're talking about. So in some instances, you could do practices like cover cropping or, con or, con or moving from um, heavy tillage to no tillage or conservation tillage to try to restore the health. Uh, other instances, you could also do improved fertilizer management so that really we reduce nitrous oxides that seeps in soil. Another crop type that's a little bit more unique is uh, one we also see more in our part of the world is related to rice cultivation. So uh, not many of us might be aware that uh, within agriculture, aside from cows burping, which is the number one emitter on pig, actually um, growing rice is the second largest uh, emitter on, in wicked agriculture space. And the reason being when you, when you grow rice, you actually need to continuously flood the paddy fields. The anaerobic digestion actually um, will create some methane emissions. And so the practice of moving from what we call continuously flooding to alternate wetting or drying or AWD actually then reduces the emissions. So actually what more, more importantly, what it also does is to reduce water usage, which, which today is becoming more and more scarce resource. So that's within the agriculture space. Certainly there are several other crop types that, that will require certain different types of interventions, but that's just to give you a flavor. And finally, on, on blue carbon, for instance, that would be relating to things like wetlands and mangroves, where you could do both restoration and conservation of these carbon states, which have very high carbon potential. I also wanted to touch upon another project type, which it might be a bit of a misnomer to put it under nature-based solutions projects, but say because it relates to more community-based projects, and that's the distribution of energy-efficient household devices. And the reason I raise this is in many of the rural regions, um, particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa and in Southeast Asia regions, we are seeing communities still doing what we call open fire cooking. I guess that's what we do when we go and fire. Uh, but what this really creates is lots of household air pollution and also drudgery for women and children having to go into the forest 
to cut down the firewood in order to cook. And therefore, one of the one of the mechanisms is to actually distribute more energy efficient, thermally thermally efficient cookstoves to the these rural households, so that they can reduce the amount of firewood. In some instances, they can just use crop residues from their own farmlands as well as the feedstock to generate the fire they require for cooking. In that way, actually reduces deforestation. That's why I feel that there's also actually a linkage to NBS in itself. There's definitely a lot of interesting things in there and a lot of things you can really choose from, from blue carbon, mangroves, soil carbon, rice, forestry, cookstoves, really a lot of things to choose from. And what I would love to understand is how do you at Gen Zero decide which types of NBS to focus on and what your criteria are in making that decision? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, at Gen Zero um, really believe that all solutions are very essential because collectively, MBS comprise up to a third of the emissions reductions that will be required um, by 2030. So it is really not one single project type that is preferred um, versus the other. And and really the, the parameters or the lens that we take is one of time frame. There is no, there is no kind of um, of silver bullets to this solution and we need all kind of toolkits that we can deploy at this point in time. So in the near to medium term, we're really looking to shore up some of the reduction types of projects that can, you know, quite imminently remove or reduce, sorry, carbon emissions, things like conserving standing forests, things like reducing emissions through more energy efficient crop stoves, things like doing improved forest management, right? Just moving from aggressively harvesting forests to to um, doing some levels of sustainable harvesting. So I think in the near to medium term, a lot of these reduction projects will prove to be um, quite effective in generating the climate mitigation Now, obviously, having said that, in the long, medium to longer term, we're also looking at um, removal opportunities that relate to afforestation, reforestation uh, opportunities, forestry, and this will fundamentally um, kind of boost the permanence of some of the carbon sequestration that will be uh, accumulated over time. So I think from our point of view, it's really a, a question of uh, capital allocation and a time frame exercise where we think that all these project types will need um, the, the relevant lead time it takes to, to deploy. And for instance, to give you an example, afforestation and reforestation will likely require four to five years in time before the trees are fully grown and hit the maximum potential in terms of carbon sequestration. And therefore, it's important to start the work early, but you will also see that the climate impact that we might derive, we might not see as imminently as kind of Soren, I, I realized that I might have not uh, addressed one of your earlier questions around the two, which you also asked me around who are some of the investors in, in the space. Yeah, let's dive into that for sure. I think it's really interesting to see Gen Zero investing, but there's a lot of other players in there as well. So maybe maybe you can give us a quick overview of who the investors in those projects are. Sure. I think it's, it's quite a fascinating space um, within NBS because traditionally it's been a space that's been mostly supported by the conservation organizations or the philanthropic organizations. And therefore, a lot of them tend to be a little bit on the smaller scale and subscale side as well. Um, but what has really changed um, in the recent years with the increasing commitments from corporates who was net zero is that this is becoming more and more of an institutionalized asset class, albeit still in the early days. So we're starting to see also, you know, so like commodity firms, and as the corporates, uh, asset managers, 
particularly those who have set themselves you know, quite ambitious climate, carbon neutrality or net zero climate goals, um, to be to use some of these investments to also offset their internal footprint in a way. And, and over time, we're also seeing, as I mentioned, more institutionalized investors uh, could be from the likes of the uh, plants, infrastructure players, who would be looking at, you know, kind of monetizing some of these uh, carbon credits potentials. Awesome. And you bring up an interesting point there that maybe is not appreciated enough is that Gen Zero is a long-term capital holder. You're not working within a defined fund life. And so there is more flexibility around the types of investments that are suited to you. Uh, one thing I'm curious about is the investment criteria specifically and how that uh, compares or contrasts with how a traditional venture growth equity investor would look at such investments. Yeah, no, thanks, Lishin. You actually highlighted that. In fact, I was probably um, uh, remiss me to not have mentioned that in the first instance myself. Indeed, um, with Gen Zero kind of being more of a permanent capital vehicle set up, company that's been spun off from Tomasic in the middle of last year with $5 billion Singapore dollars capitalization. It does give us the flexibility to take more longer dated positions, which is especially critical for a space like MBS where all these projects tend to be on a longer tenure. Um, however, being you know, kind of a commercial investor as well, it is still quite important for us to, to have very judicious application of criteria in terms of evaluating projects that we select. And as you can appreciate, these are hugely complex project types with several parameters that we do need to take into consideration. But uh, for some of the key evaluation parameters that we look at, um, first and foremost, we actually be programmed quality. And what we mean by that is the, the environmental integrity and quality of the project as it relates to additionality, permanence, leakage baselines, and other co-benefits that so that, I think, is a quintessential criteria for us. And next, we obviously also look at the project developers' experience and track record on the ground. Granted, a lot of these projects are in some of the difficult-to-access regions, and we definitely need partners with boots on the ground and implementation track record to ensure that it's not just the implementation at the get-go. It's not the first tree that's being planted, but the ongoing monitoring, reviewing, and reporting is undertaken in a high integrity manner. So that's that's why we also lean on project developers with good track record and experience that can support us. The other area that we also look at would be also the readiness of the project. And this is a quite tricky one in the space of MBS, given that there are a lot of projects could, which could be also at the pre-feasibility starting stage, for instance, uh, and and therefore might not and therefore, might not be immediately um, ready in terms of the assessment of the carbon potential that for us to to, to be able to put the trigger on making the investment. Um, the other aspect that we also look at obviously relates to scalability and, and in a way links to financial returns as well. Um, to my point earlier, some of these projects tend to be uh, a bit more subskilled in the past. And some of it is also a function of the availability of the, the resources in terms of the topography. Give me an example, in the, in the case of MacBooks, for instance, although they have a much higher carbon potential in terms of storage, it is also difficult to find large contiguous land areas to do so. So it's 
for us to properly assess whether the project is viable on a longer term basis, we also need to apply the lens on how scalable it is, and that essentially will feed to how financially viable it is over time. I think one final aspect that is not really relating to the project itself, as if that's not already enough in terms of the area to look at, uh, it's actually more a macro overview as well because of the jurisdictions that we operate in, a lot of them in global south, emerging markets, we do need that overlay on the jurisdictional risks uh, in terms of the current regulatory frameworks and policies that have been placed uh, in these of these countries. Cool. Lots of criteria to really look at. Um, and I guess a lot of investments will have made it through those criteria already. And I would love to dive a bit deeper into some of those examples of investments that you made that you're particularly br- proud of. Can you share a couple of investments that are particularly going well, that you're particularly excited because of a novel approach or some other reasons why you want to highlight? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. In the Florida, as I mentioned, we try to apply the lens of evaluation on some of the investments we've made so far. Um, I've really tried to also do investment in different parts of the world and in part for us to also better understand the intricacies operating in different jurisdictions. So, for instance, in, in North America, where the market is a little bit more mature and we have the ability to deploy a more sizable exposure is one um, where we are partnered with a new one of the in North America um, to to invest in the Blue Source Sustainable Forest Company, or what we call BSS short. Uh, what this company does is really to do improved forest management of large um, of large areas of land over 50 plus different properties, uh, totaling 1.7 million acres. A lot of them actually, what's interesting is actually natural hardwood forests. Um, and so in in doing the sustainable harvesting practices, each property is also managed to ensure that the species that is intended for each region is being enhanced and reintroduced even as harvesting is going on. So that balance on rotation cycles Sustainable harvesting will allow from the move away from aggressively depleting the forest resource through harvesting into a more sustainable and improved forest management site. So that's that's one that's likely to have quite a, a sizable impact, just given the land universe that it's operating in. And I think it's also quite a good feature and, and you know a landmark for some of the other projects that could be developed in the same vein across the continent and certainly in other countries as well. Um, I think in other parts of emerging markets as well, it's particularly exciting for us, uh, would be one of the recent uh, investments that we announced in partnership Aja Climate um, to restore 100,000 hectares of degraded lands in Kuala Ghana. And that is through uh, agroforestry and regeneration of native species. Uh, I think that that will also bolster kind of the local livelihoods or communities that we're working with. So we're hugely excited about that. Um, closer to home, I spoke a little bit about rice cultivation earlier on and trying to solve the problem of methane emissions. I think uh, in, in now parts of the world, um, given just that we are actually seeing the, the key rice production regions being in also aside from China, being in India and also parts of Southeast Asia, Thailand, Vietnam, are actually quite quite keen to see how we can you know help support the decarbonization of rice cultivation in in this parts of the world. So to that end. We actually announced a partnership with uh, both Bayer and Shell on undertaking uh, stable rice cultivation through alternate wetting and dry AWT that I spoke about in India, particularly working with smallholder farmers. And this is why it's of a, a particular interest to me because I think each, each of these smallholder farmers own just one, two hectares of land. 
And it is actually really neat an effort like this where you amalgamate um, different fragmented you know, parcels through working with uh, farmer producer organizations or cooperatives to be able to make a scalable uh, and impactful change. And um, close to home in Southeast Asia, we're also partnering with Wavemaker Impact Breakthrough Energy Ventures, Systematic, to set up an agri-tech venture that will, again, you know, kind of put in place different toolkits that will support farmers in transitioning to sustainable farming practices beyond just AWD, but also giving them uh, financing solutions such as inputs financing or even on the outputs purchase front. Um, and finally, I think one of the projects I'd like to speak about earlier already also around cook stoves. That's also a, a project that we have um, partnered with Sequest Capital to roll out in four countries in Southeast Asia, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, and Vietnam to distribute up to a million energy-efficient cook stoves to rural houses in this region. Uh, I myself had the, the pleasure of actually visiting some of the households in Siam Reap and Chiang Mai earlier this year. And it was actually really heartening to see, first of all, that the improved cook stoves were actually put into use. Uh, it's actually not a, a trivial matter. It's one thing to distribute the stoves, but it's also another thing to ensure that it's being utilized on an ongoing basis because it does involve a little bit of a cultural change and education to to the the households to be able to adopt you know, essentially a new device. So it was uh, it was quite a pleasure to be able to see the households actually using that. And more importantly, I think through some of the interviews uh, that we had with the, the local communities where we asked, what do you then do with the time that you have now saved that you no longer have to you know, um, hike to the forest to collect the firewood? Uh, what is the amount of time you have saved and what do you do with the time you have saved? Right? So in some instances, they can save up to three hours a day in terms of walking to and through the forest and, and they will be redeploying the time that they have saved to more productive activities such as embroidery work, which they then can now get be another ancillary source of income. So I thought this were actually very real world ground impact that we could feel from investing for this project. That's super interesting, especially for an audience that might not be familiar with those regions of the world, quite like Silicon Valley, where startups are, are so prevalent. And if you can, I would love you uh, to give us a quick overview um, Obviously, these are not startups. These are different uh, different projects, different developers that you are investing in. But you are a commercial fund. Can you share a bit more about when you invest in those projects and how you are making a return in the end? Of course. Yeah. So I think in terms of the timing that we invest in the projects, um, one of the lands I was uh, alluding to in terms of evaluation uh, relates to the readiness of the project. So um, for, for a company like ours, we typically would invest at the stage where the project is ready to scale. And, and I think that's where our capital will probably be best positioned to support in the large-scale rollout program. And therefore, the timing that we typically undertake will be, I'd say, post-feasibility study, post-initial pathfinder projects or pilots, uh, in which uh, um, we will be we'll finding a window of opportunity for us to really help to scale that up. A good example is actually what we did with Sequest Capital in Southeast Asia. They undertook an initial small number of pathfinder projects uh, within some of these countries just to do local sensitization and show that the villagers actually um, are willing to accept the stove models, the utilization, before rolling that out on a larger scale. And that's where they need more commercial capital in the backs of ourselves to support them in the rapid, rapid acceleration of scale, not just within the initial countries, but over time export the same model to other different countries as well. 
And in terms of the, the sources of returns for us, uh, Florian, your question, um, essentially comes in a couple couple of ways. Um, one, one key aspect, and I think which is why this entire carbon market is becoming an emerging asset class to invest in, is through the generation of carbon credits. Through the emissions reductions, they are able to demonstrate, obvious, uh, obviously you need to do so with uh, proper accreditation and monitor review processes, you know, project listing and validation. Where after going through all, all of that process, uh, the carbon credits can then issued um, to against every ton of emissions that we reduced, avoided, um, or removed. And those common emissions can then be traded as carbon credits that will then become our source of returns. I think one of the interesting elements that we, we have within Gen Zero, and, and that underpins our investments into carbon ecosystem enablers as well. Aside from project level investing, we also believe in investing into the broader ecosystem because we need to create the market um, that will help to uh, encourage and promote the, the trading of such voluntary carbon credits. So one key initiative we have undertaken is to set up the Climate Impact X, or what we call CIX, um, which is the Carbon Credits Exchange and Marketplace, jointly with uh, Singapore Exchange, Standard Chartered Bank, as well as DBS. It will, it will kind of create a more liquid and transparent platform for the trading of these carbon credits to end users and commodity firms that might have usage for these credits. These credits, the sale, the proceeds from the sale of these credits will then form our returns for having investing upfront in, in, in financing the capex and opex of these projects. Now, aside from carbon credits, I think there's also another ancillary source of revenue for us, which is quite important, uh, which relates to the underlying economic activities that some of these MBS projects in themselves can generate. I spoke about forestry a little bit in that the through sustainable harvesting, actually the timber, that is uh, generated from, from the project can actually be sold to end markets as well. And we know in today's world that fiber continues to be uh, a key usage for pulp and paper for the, the construction industry. So that the sale of the timber will continue to be a source of returns. Likewise, in the space of agriculture, um, through the implementation of regenerative agriculture, aside from the emissions reductions or sequestration, they can demonstrate from the soil organic carbon or the methane emissions that it can demonstrate from the rice projects in the form monetized in the form of carbon credits. The underlying cell of the more sustainably produced um, agricultural crop in itself can also be uh, an additional source of returns. Got it. Uh, you touched upon a lot of different things there. We'll get back to MRV and some of the murkiness around it in a bit. But one thing that hit close to home for me is this idea of community engagement, doing so responsibly because Back when I was at the GSB, I actually worked on a startup idea in carbon farming focused on Southeast Asia. So this idea of engaging responsibly, uh, responsibly with communities came up a lot, making sure that farmers' interests are upheld first, as well as uh, of those uh, vulnerable communities that might surround them. So I'm curious when you're engaging in these emerging parts of the world on such projects that impact people's livelihoods, how does Gen Zero think of responsible community engagement and how do you diligence something like that? Yeah, absolutely, Shanice. I think that is a very essential aspect of MBS projects because we are essentially touching the livelihoods of some of the most, I guess, underprivileged communities in the world uh, in some instances also leveraging some of the, the resources and, and their buy-in in terms of participating in our projects. 
So for sure, I think one of the key aspects that we undertake as part of the diligence would be to see whether the project developer has undertaken the requisite steps in terms of obtaining FPIC or what we call free prior informed consent, or FPIC for short, um, that, that is to ensure that the communities are well informed of the, the practices and the uh, interventions that will be implemented and to get their buy-in on doing so, as well as uh, a mechanism for them to voice any grievances or concerns around the implications in some some of the changes could, could bring to them. Um, typically, a social economic study of sorts will also need to be undertaken at the feasibility stage um, to, to ensure that there is no undesired consequences out of the projects that, that you're implementing. I think one one very important aspect uh, that that actually that we we try to you know advocate for for project developers and we we certainly um, participate alongside them in doing it's actually to go in some instances above and beyond what the standards actually require in terms of engaging the communities and that's down to every grassroots to the village chief to the, to what we call the local champions to ensure that each um, each member within the community is kept well appraised of what's going on. I'll give you an example in, in the Cookstores projects that we were doing, for instance. As you can imagine, the concept of carbon credits, I guess even in our parts of the world, is something that is still fairly nascent. And for the most educated, it's still something that we're, we're trying to get better understanding for off. One more for communities that are in the most rural regions, in many instances, a lot of them might not be um, deteriorate as well. The, the concept of carbon credits in itself is actually quite quite complex for them. So as much as the standard doesn't require kind of um, um, uh, additional um, education beyond getting that consent in the form, you could actually get get a consent in the form of just printing out uh, text and getting their sign off on it to, to describe that they're essentially um, giving up their carbon credits uh, in exchange for receiving the, the stoves that uh, in itself will, will generate kind of other other benefits in terms of improved household uh, air pollution situation for them. But this this process uh, of only doing it ink and paper, while it's sufficient as the standards require, but what we've done is actually to go above and beyond that in some instances, putting pictorial guides, which will be a lot more um, intuitive, I think, to some of the households in terms of describing what this project actually entails. More importantly, having the locals, what we call the stove champions, that will go to the households to actually explain to them um, what what are the intricacies of the project. So I think some of these elements is really the softer touch that is important on ground. Um, and I think one one of the other aspects is also around the, the equity of distribution of the benefits that's associated with the project. Um, so as we look into the project design alongside the developers, we'll ensure that the uh, reasonable amount of the the revenues that are generated from the public credits actually get redeployed back into the communities, not necessarily always in the form of cash, because that might not be the best way to redistribute the benefits back to the communities, but in terms of initiatives that will be relevant for the communities in terms of building schools, healthcare, or village savings loans, as the case, as the case may be. That's really interesting to hear. And I think one question that I'm still having around NBS is thinking back to all the controversy that has been in the media around them recently. What do you see as the key challenges to scaling NBS project and to scaling the markets in itself if it has benefits that, that other carbon removal solutions, for instance, don't have? Absolutely. I think the, the, the noise in the market, if I may put it, 
um, is something that is would be quite, quite symptomatic of any industry that is in its nascency and developing phase. And in a way, it actually is it's a good thing to, to have that as a catalyst to accelerate some of the improvements in the standards, in the transparency, in the liquidity and in trading of these project types, for instance. So I think actually it's a very welcomed, strange as it might sound, it's actually quite welcomed to have a certain level of healthy criticism in the market because that's the only way we will improve and get to a better level of integrity. Having said that, um, an excessive amount of criticism, uh, uh, which is which sometimes may be formed on the basis of you know cherry picking certain situations to illustrate a point by some of the advocacy groups, uh, may also not be particularly helpful. And in some instances, we have seen it uh, leading to paralysis in terms of actions and bias being on the sidelines, not not understanding and not being able to to act quickly enough. I think what, what we can say that the, the easiest thing to do is to do is to do nothing if you're not sure of what to do. But uh, the climate emergency does not give us the luxury of doing that. And therefore, even if we do acknowledge that certain um, certain practices or certain methodologies should always be you know, reviewed on an ongoing basis, it does not in itself take away the premise and the importance of us acting today on some of these projects. And I think a lot of the carbon markets initiatives actually helped improve that over time. Uh, for instance, the Tabernay Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets, or ITBCM, has come up with core carbon principles. There were no better help for buyers, carbon buyers, in terms of discerning project types. Uh, and, and certainly, we will also see the emergence of carbon ratings companies who, uh, again, help, to help buyers to be able to um, uh, evaluate the underlying project quality. But suffice to say, I think the, the amount of um, increased scrutiny uh, will add a layer of robustness to the, to the projects, which I'm, um, I'm actually hugely supportive of. And that also underpins our selection of project developers because that, that is a process that we go through with them to ensure that they have properly institutionalized implementation processes that will allow them to be able to, to undertake the MRV that's required throughout the holy period and not just start a project, you know, and, and not ensure that the, the processes are undertaken in an ongoing basis. We love your optimism and bias reaction and we share that. And it seems like a case of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So hopefully that continues to play out in NBS as we move past and work through these issues. Uh, zooming out of NBS now as we approach the final segment of our show, one thing we observed is that there's still relatively few women in climate careers as well as in investing careers. So there's you and me, but I wish there were a lot more of us. Uh, so what are the push and pull factors in your view and how do you think we can continue to improve? Yeah, no, that's that's an interesting observation, Shanice. Um, in fact, I feel that in the space of climate uh, and investing, especially if you see that intersection, um, it is actually pretty much a, an open space, just given the, the enlarging area and sweet spot that is in today. I see it as quite a level playing field um, in terms of getting you know different people from different backgrounds and genders as well. So. Uh, I essentially think that it's actually the, the opportunity set is huge for women, um, well, uh, as well as men, to the extent in terms of stepping up and participating in, in the space. Uh, 
huge pull factor in terms of being able to make uh, such a big impact at and be at a pivotal moment of an industry that's at the cusp of taking off. And where a lot of the changes are essentially being shaped by the actors ourselves today. So there's not, in a lot of instances, there's no kind of a pre-prescribed um, ways of doing things or um, a best practice is always necessarily established for the longest time. So I think that's actually hugely interesting uh, for, work for women to step up and be able to showcase that the thought leadership in terms of leading, you know, kind of well, what would make an impact like on the planet. Yeah, no, I, I've actually, I'm very, very encouraged by the huge amount of interest that, and enthusiasm they were seeing from youth, you know, in terms of really participating in, in the climate space. And I think one, one of the areas that I'll be very, very keen to see more talent develop in will be really the intersection of science and and commercial investments. As Shanice, to your point, there's actually, it's very, very difficult to find um, qualified people who actually have been operating in both fields because traditionally people who care a lot about the environment they care too much about making money and people who care about making money probably didn't care too much about the environment. So we're actually at this uh, very interesting intersection point at this, at this point in time where we're seeing the skill sets for, for both of this to be completely complementary. In a way, that's how we've also set up our teams here Gen Zero, that's multidisciplinary in nature and interdisciplinary to that extent, where people from environmental science backgrounds, commercial investments backgrounds, people from policy and regulatory backgrounds, because as you as you might have gathered from today's session, you really need a lot of actors from and participants from different segments of the industry to weigh in and lean in. So I think for for the youth out there, I I think it'll be it's an amazing opportunity at this point in time. For you to be able to um, cross-learn and, and cross-pollinate across different disciplines and, and with the wealth of knowledge that you can bring to practicing um, uh, in, in the real-world field when we come to the investment space. So I think this is a fantastic opportunity where I think maybe say five, ten years ago didn't quite exist in terms of the understanding of the market on the importance of this. But today, it is different and I think you are at you know, super well-poised um, to, to leverage that at this point in time. That's wonderful and a really cool ending to this podcast. What I'm definitely taking away is that there is a clear case for nature-based solutions, that there's a, an immense diversity of project types and that we need many of them, and that there's more than one way to get a return. We talked about carbon credits. We also talked about some others. And I think one of my highlights of this session has been uh, your quote around that some noise is good to catalyze the market into, to become better and that we still need rigor and that we need everyone and that we need cross-disciplinarity. And I think then NBS cannot just be good for you as an investor. It can also be good for careers and good for the planet. And I think that's a wonderful ending. So thank you for joining us today, Lingman. Thank you, Florian, for the wonderful story. And thank you, Shanice and Florian, for having me today. I thoroughly Likewise. enjoyed our conversation. Likewise. Thank you. Join us next time as we speak to another game-changing entrepreneur, innovator, or investor who is working to get us down to zero.